I think he said it was something that his grandma used to say or something like that and that he was going to start a label. And I guess I remember kind of being like, whoa, that's crazy. Welcome back to Labeled, the stories, rumors, and legends of Tooth & Nail Records. I'm your host, Matt Carter. And uh, before we start the show today, I just want to say a huge thank you to you, listeners and fans. If you didn't catch it last week, we launched a free and open Facebook group for anybody who considers themselves part of this community. And it's linked in the show notes, and it's super cool to see it come alive. There's almost 400 people in it already. And, you know, we're also using it as a primary source of content and info and fact-checking for the show. So I'll ask you, come join it and help us shape the podcast. The whole label team is in there and a bunch of artists and band folks, too. It's a lot of fun. We even set up a voicemail line that we'll be asking people to call in and contribute to the show with stuff like that. So very happy that everybody likes the new direction of the show. The feedback's been amazing. Uh, of course, I do want to let you know that we will certainly be getting into very specific and narrow stories about particular bands. A lot of people have asked me about that. We're definitely going to do that, and from every time period, too. But to me, it is essential to get as much context as possible because it gives the stories so much more meaning when you see the history and the origins of certain philosophies and conflicts that precipitated them that we're going to cover as we go. And my goal for the series is for it to be able to stand alone kind of as a cohesive time capsule or archive or something like that, you know, of the scene that we all belong to and love. And so we got a little bit more of universe establishing work to do before we break into the very narrow. And today I want to get you better acquainted with Brandon Ebel. We're going to try to show that he's a true fan of music who happened to be endowed with a rare mind for business and the willingness to learn from and empower those around him. And by that, I mean both the bands and the staff. You'll see. And listening back to this episode, as I'm doing the voiceover here, it, it really hits me how, if not for all these little details and coincidences, I personally might not be sitting here right now or ever had a career at all. And the same would be true about so many other artists and people that I know. And I'm sure that everyone out there can imagine how their life would be different if none of this ever got off the ground. Is that sense that history kind of seems to hinge on some seemingly trivial actions is wild. Okay, so last week we blasted through about two decades of the early Christian music scene, ending with the emergency of the underground hardcore Christian punk scene. And you met people like Matt Johnson and Aaron Sprinkle, just to name a couple. And we left off right when Tooth & Nail was about to be created. The Southern California underground scene that had been organically forming out of the Calvary Chapel scene was slowly spreading and connecting with the rest of the West Coast. People like Mark Solomon and Billy Power were using snail mail to share merch and their love of bands of this style of music. And some kid named Brandon Ebel was about to make a serious impact by forming one of the most influential Christian labels of all time. We're not exactly there yet, though. So first, we need some more background information on this Brandon character and how he went from fan to founder. Here's Brandon. So I grew up a Christian youth group kid. My dad was a pastor. And... I grew up, you know, listening to Christian music, and a lot of it sucked. And at some point when I was in junior high, that's all I was allowed to listen to. But when I got into high school, my parents just kind of gave up, right? And so I listened to everything, but I still had an affection towards Christian music. But I always thought, God, it could be better, right? Brandon was right. It could be better. But what he didn't know back then is that he would one day play a big role in helping making it happen and getting the good music out to the people who wanted it. But first, he had to do a few things, like, go to college. So he went to Oregon State University and chose a very sensible path, but he didn't stay on that too long. And 
Here's me and Brandon. When I was at Oregon State, I was getting a business degree and then I switched to broadcasting. I realized it was a broadcasting department and I started checking it out and I had a couple of friends that were in it and realized like, I just don't know if I really want to be like a stockbroker or work in finance. So I really thought I could work in television. So I wanted to possibly be a producer. I was the school weatherman on our local cable access channel. This is like Wayne's World. This is before you had a YouTube channel. And then I produced a TV show called Style Bite. And I thought I was going to be a producer or maybe try to own my own radio so station. Go into, if I can go all the way back, you were in business in the first place because why? Because I, I don't know, I just went to college and I thought I should major in business. <laughs> At that time, you thought you could be a stockbroker? I didn't, yeah, I didn't know. Yeah, I thought maybe I could be a stockbroker. I don't know. I mean, what? I mean, a lot of kids don't know what they want to do, right? They go to college, they're like, I don't know. But oh. you found broadcast and entertainment and TV. Yeah, so I produced my own little TV show. I was the weatherman. I produced a news segment for a while, and that was interesting. And then I got on as a DJ and I had my own radio show. And the radio show then, that's when I started playing some of these cassette tapes of these unsigned groups, like Portal Lou was on my radio show. That's how I got into all of it, really, is through the radio show. And the radio show was playing, we were playing like, you know, Nirvana's first album, Bleach, Green Day, Kerplunk, all kinds of groups, like all the sub-pop records, all the indie stuff. It was awesome. Okay, so were you thinking then... Maybe I can become a DJ. Like you didn't know I'm going to run a giant record label and influence Christian music. No, no, I thought, well, maybe I'm going to, maybe I could start my own radio station or maybe I could do, um, you know, I was just trying to think of all these different things that I. But still, even that is a little bizarre of a thought. I might start my own radio station. Isn't I, I don't think I knew I couldn't, right? So right. I was like, I'm going to do but this. But you, you actually thought I might start a radio station. No, I actually station. researched it. I actually went and interned at Z100 in Portland, Oregon. And KEX, the AM station, and I worked on that show on um, on the AM side. I worked with Bob Miller, who was the big AM guy in Portland, Oregon. And I would work uh, on all his guests that would come into the show. So I worked with like um, Twin Peaks actors, like the One Arm Man and stuff. Like I would go get that guy coffee, and I'd bring him in, and I'd make sure they're taken care of, and bring him into the studio, stuff like that. Like I worked at a radio station for half a year as an intern because you wanted to figure out how it worked. So that you could possibly start my own radio station. <laughs> then I realized it costs like a million dollars to buy a radio station. What would even possess you to think you could start a radio station? What is that? That quality. No one, no one told me I couldn't. So then I thought I will go get investors, and everyone was like, "What? We're not going to give a million dollars to some twenty-two-year-old kid or whatever." So I was like, "All right, well then, I got a job offer to come work at Frontline Records in L.A. Because when I had my radio show, this guy Tony Shore, who was in their radio department, would send me cassette tapes to give away. And by the way, like KBVR was a cool college radio station, but there wasn't a ton of things to give away. But I got these record labels to give me a bunch of cassette tapes to give away on there. So I'd be like, hey, you know, call in right now. And if you're the fifth caller, you'll get a free Scattered Few cassette or whatever. And I, you know, I had a little cult following the people that listened to my radio show and I would give away free stuff and t-shirts and, you know, whatever. So then he said, Hey, if you ever want a job, you could possibly like, you know, work down here at Frontline Records and we're in California. 
So in the late 80s and early 90s, Frontline Records was the closest thing that Christian punk kids had to a legit alternative label. And they had a huge influence in Christian bookstores where pretty much all of these punk kids' parents were buying or letting them buy music. So Brandon was pretty stoked to get the opportunity to be part of that world and to bring the amazing bands that he knew in Southern California and Seattle to Frontline. And the people that worked there, they'd finally be able to merge this you know, indie punk scene with a legit label and make some progress. Brandon worked uh, with Frontline Records. Here's Matt Johnson, the drummer for Blenderhead and Roadside Monument. You heard from him last week. Frontline would put stuff out that was um, kind of alternative-y, so they're known for putting out uh, the Altar Boys, which are sort of like, I don't know, replacements-ish kind of pop rock that is sort of influenced by punk a little bit. If you like the replacements, you'll love the Altar Boys, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. There was a minute where Frontline and Alarma... This is Aaron Sprinkle talking, producer at Tooth & Nail Records, as well as a member of the bands Rose Blossom Punch and Poor Old Lou. Which was an imprint on Frontline, was sort of just the source, you know, this is before the internet, is before any of that stuff, so it's like, okay, what's the next thing coming out on Alarma? It's probably going to be good. The funny thing is that's where I met Brandon years later. He was literally working for that same label. I think maybe Alarma was like a sub-label of Frontline. And they put out Poor Old Lou. I think they also put out Daniel Amos, which was a pretty legit new wave band that was pretty good. They put out some some decent stuff. Scattered Few, you know, they even started doing like rap and hip hop stuff and all this stuff that just, it just seemed a little more legit. Gave us a little more of that feeling of like looking over our shoulder, like, should we be listening to this? Which is kind of what we were chasing at the time. ended up through some chance, and when I say we, I mean Poor Old Lou, my, the first band I was in. We had met Brandon briefly before all this in Oregon at a show. He had been there, and he'd, he'd been playing our tape on his radio show in college. So he was partly to do with us even getting signed to Frontline. He was working there, um, not a high-level job. You know, it was kind of a right-out-of-college type of job. So he was playing your music at Oregon State, and you met yeah. you were up there, you were up or down at Oregon State in Portland somewhere playing a show, and you met him. He introduced himself to you, or you knew who he was. Yeah, and Poor Lou played a show there in the maybe like I want to say '91, and met him. So we met, we'd met him even a few years before this. Yeah. 
if you grow up like in a youth group conservative Christian culture, this isn't like where you can just flip up Spotify on your phone and listen to whatever you want. Like kids couldn't listen to cool music. I could, but a lot of kids weren't even allowed to, right? So I, there was all these bands in Seattle and in Orange County, California, mostly some in LA. But the West Coast had this whole thing going on, which was different than like Nashville, Tennessee, which was like doing like one bad pig or whatever they were doing. It was just the right time. It was just the right time where like Christian music was a little corny. There was all these bands that were happening on their own virally. Like, you know, Focus could play a show and there would be 500 kids that would buy a cassette tape, right? I'm like, huh? Like, how in the world? And the bands that are on this record label that I was working at Frontline, there'd be like 150 people at a show. Are you at these shows doing math, running projections while you're sitting there watching and saying 500 is this times that? I mean, yeah, just basic math. Automatically. Yeah, I'm like, well, 500 people would buy it tonight, and this is one city. Even if you could get, hypothetically, 3,000 people in L.A. and 1,000 people in San Diego and 800 people in Portland and 800 people in, you know, we could sell 10,000 records, right? So times this much money, if I gave them eight grand or 10,000 and then they had this percentage or whatever, we could probably all get our money back and make a little bit of money. I mean, it's not rocket science, really, and there's no competition. No one else wanted to do it. Like, Revelation Records and Victory and all these labels, at the time at least, probably weren't into it because they were Christian, and then all the Christian labels were freaked out because they didn't even know about it. It was just too heavy and weird, and it wasn't probably vertical enough lyrically. Like, you know, they wanted something more Christian, or I don't know. Like, so it just seems so obvious to me. Like, it just made sense. It's like, you're sitting here, and you're like, God, there's this huge need for these guys to have better recordings. It sounds like crap. Like they record on like eight track, you know, four track. This is, again, this is before you could just whip open like Pro Tools or whatever. Computers weren't even a part of the equation at all. Right. So I literally go down there. I go down to this this record label and I've worked there for like two days and I meet Jim Worthen, who works for me now. He's working there. And I am a phone rep that has to call Christian bookstores and sell them CDs and tapes and occasionally vinyl. I'm not even working at the record label. I'm working at the distribution side of the record label. And so I immediately walk into their A&R department. My very first day, I go, hey, I got here on Friday. And I know this is Monday, but I this weekend I went and saw this band Focused and there was like 600 kids and here's their tape. I thought you should check it out. And he's like, who are you, man? I'm like, oh, I, I, I'm new here at the label. I'm a phone rep. And he goes, hmm. He goes, well, this is the A&R department, so you're like a sales guy, so you should probably just, you know, stay over there. I was like, oh, okay. I thought we were all just part of this team. <laughs> wow. Do you think Frontline, like, really blew it? Like, they had somebody that could have been a top A&R guy and changed their company? Absolutely. So Brandon finally makes it into Frontline Records, thinking and hoping that these guys will get it and that he'll be a part of the team that's making music better and giving kids what they really want. But come to find out, that doesn't seem to be the case. In the eyes of the suits there, Brandon is just some kid working in a distribution center, stuffing envelopes and licking stamps and making sales calls. They had no idea what he would go on to become, how big of an error they'd made in blowing him off. I mean, are you kidding me? I begged to work for them and, you know, we sold 26 million records. So, yeah, they blew it. I mean, I don't think I'm arrogant, but yeah, they blew it. By the way, I went I went and signed all the bands I brought them. Minus like two bands I didn't get. There's this band, Little Dog China, that signed somewhere else, and I didn't get Poor Lou. Well, Poor Lou signed there the week I was quitting, or I would have signed them too. But every other band was there for the taking. I gave them all to them on a silver platter. Sign all these bands. What did you say? Don't make you know down all your words. 
So the guy that comes to them and gets blown off goes on to sell 26 million records. Yeah. So Brandon's at Frontline trying to change the scene, make money for the label, and get the music that people want out in the world. But Frontline won't learn from him. They just want him to do the job he was hired for. So after this break, we'll see what it took for Brandon to get out of the distribution call center and up to Seattle, where he and his staff would eventually change the course and the face of the Christian music scene. What's up, guys? This is Adam at Tooth and Nail, and you were just listening to Let It Die. That's one of the new songs off of the new May album that comes out this Friday, November 30th. It's called Multisensory Aesthetic Experience, and we are so pumped about this thing. If you did not know, May has a new album coming out, and it rules. Some of you guys might have picked up the EP that we put out a couple months ago, but the full-length comes out in a couple days here so please go check it out it it is just so cool there's actually a whole bunch of virtual reality components to it you can buy viewers on the band's website virtual reality viewers to kind of experience an album really like you never have been able to before so please go pick that up check out whatismay.com and you can buy vinyl from the label website tooth and nail records at merchnow.com but more than anything check out spotify check out apple music or go buy it on itunes or at one of the stores this friday may multi-sensory aesthetic experience it is awesome it is pretty if you love may there's just a zero percent chance that you won't love this thanks guys All right, now back to it. Here's me and Brandon again. But so how do you think about the balance between, I mean, you're talking about investors and market and return on investment as a kid. Yeah, but I, I ended up not doing any of that. I just ended up getting a loan from my grandfather for 60 grand to do the whole thing, and I just did it my way. But you're still, at that time, even as a kid, before you borrow 60 grand, which is a giant sum of money in what you're... 1993. That's a lot of money in 19. It's a lot of money today in 1993 to borrow 60 grand and understand investing and return on investment and talk to people and do that. But it's also balanced with it's not about money, it's about trying to help these bands. How did so? It's always been with you both, absolutely. It's always been both. It's always been both. Like I wanted to, ha- I wanted the bands to get bigger and to make money, and I wanted to break even and get my money back and try to make a living doing it. I mean, I remember. My, I will never forget the time my mom called me. She goes, "You borrowed sixty thousand dollars from Grandpa, who is an electrician with an eighth grade degree, who had saved up a bunch of money over his life." You know, I was like, "Well, I'm going to pay him back," and she was like, "Well, what if you don't?" I go, "It's sixty grand. It's a lot of money, but it's not like the end of the world." I mean. <laughs> 
I had job offers out of college to make forty grand a year. So if I was single and living in a little apartment, I could you know save up over three, four or five years. I mean, like I go, mom, there's no bankrupting out of family. I'll pay you guys back. But that's like their inheritance, right? So uh-huh. it's like it's your mom's inheritance. Well, it's all the. I mean, it's not. It's mail. their money. It's not my money. And there is no chapter like there is no bankruptcy that's for hilarious. family. I go. I'll just pay you guys back. I'll just sell lady shoes at Nordstrom. I'll um, go work at Payne Weber. I'll do whatever it takes that this doesn't work to pay you guys back. I give you my word. And plus, I have a, a binding contract with Grandpa to pay him back. So I grew up in Southern California. This is James Anthony Morelos. James was a SoCal kid who was really into aesthetics and style. And he'd eventually move up to Seattle with Brandon and become a publicist at Tooth & Nail Records. He'd later go on to found Made in Mexico Records and release bands like Pedro the Lion and Damien Gerardo. And I grew up going to church. And in the process of trying to please my strict parents and also being in Southern California, I discovered bands and the very, very inception of Tooth and Nail and ended up being hired by Brandon to do PR when he moved from Southern California to Seattle. So you knew Brandon in California? I did. Just met him from going to shows. I think I actually was making zines and I sent one to him and he actually wrote back and then met him at shows. Do you remember him even when he was working at Frontline and going to shows, like just the time when he was working there happily? Yeah, I just think he was happy to work in the music industry and around bands. Like he was just on fire. And of course, he had his own vision and was probably frustrated eventually. On fire, you mean he's going to shows all the time and meeting? Like, what was that phase like for him? Just excited, you know what I mean? And like, ready to work. Like, just, you know, he probably had a million ideas when he was working there. So he was just into it. Was there shows every night? Oh, yeah, all the time. Because he was living in Orange County. So that's where, so any of the big shows that were part of that scene were happening down there. Do you remember him quitting or leaving or anything about that story? I think so. I think the story is, is that he brought Wish for Eden to them. That's the first record he put out. And they were like, no. So he was like, um, okay, I'm going to put it out myself. <laughs> Super intense, very OCD. Matt Johnson again. Yeah, just really intense, passionate, totally loves music. Yeah, just an intense dude. Anybody who like knows him just casually probably has a story about him. Even if you're just talking to him in his office, he's like, what's up? What's up? Under Oath is blowing up. <laughs> Warp Tour, dominate. What's up, Matt Johnson? Roadside Monument, dominate. Indie Rock. <laughs> Everybody has a story about Brandon that goes along those lines. You know, it's Brandon. <laughs> And here's Billy Power, who you heard a lot from last week, and he'd, of course, go on to become head of A&R at Tooth & Nail. It's just very, like, <laughs> how's it going? You know, <laughs> like, dominate. Come on. He 
is truly a music lover and an un undiscriminating music lover, meaning he loved genres of music that I hated, but he just loved all music and the best of all music. He had a taste level, whether it was hardcore or folk or electro pop or indie rock or you know, no matter what it is, he, he had an, an actual ear for all of it. You know, where most of us are kind of like, yeah, I don't really listen to hip hop or I don't really listen to dance music. You know, he, he sort of, he has an ear for all genres of music because he's a true universal music lover. And not just a fan of like punk or not just a fan of metal, like he's like proudly, I think, like he sees it as a badge of honor that he's basically into every kind of music on earth from like very mainstream pop to like death metal. Yeah, I just remember him as being a huge fan and a fan of music and of the bands and wanting to try to be at the shows and, and have bands be on his radio show and everything like that. It was a good time for music too, because, you know, Nirvana had broke into the scene. And so there was a little bit more like, maybe viability to some of the stuff that had been underground before. I just remember him being very cool and very encouraging and just, uh, like I say, just in terms of being really into it, not casually into it at all. And, and, and having grown up around it with his dad being in the church and being a pastor and all that kind of stuff too. I don't know if at that point he had the idea that he was going to do a label or not. I, I don't think that really started until he was at Frontline and then was kind of like, I could do this better. They're blowing it. They could be signing these cool bands. That's my memory of it, at least that he basically got that job out of college and then was like kind of disappointed in, in the way that they were were running things at that label and felt like he could do it better. He kept bringing them these bands like focused and stuff like that and they weren't really interested. The fact that Brandon was even someone that would have the thought there's Aaron Sprinkle again. Well, I'm just going to do this because I can just do it myself. Like that he would be in this environment of this label and look around and be like, they're all doing this wrong and I'm going to do it right. I know what these kids want because I'm one of them. He was fired pretty shortly after that from Frontline. I think he even came to them and basically offered them a piece of it. Like, do you want to be a part of what I'm doing? And they fired him. So Aaron Sprinkle and his band Poor Old Lou had front row seats to the drama that unfolded between Brandon and Frontline Records. And their two experiences with Frontline are very similar. And here's Aaron with more of the story of how it pertains to Poor Old Lou and the shaping of Tooth and Nail. When we went down to California, when we signed with Frontline Alarma, we ended up going down there, you know, to do marketing and photos and sort of, and we even recorded a good chunk of our record at Gene Eugene's studio, the green room in Huntington Beach with Terry from Daniel Amos and Derry from the choir. He engineered it and mixed it. And we, you know, we were surrounded by these legends. The choir was such a huge band to us too. Like we were surrounded by these legends that we were, you know, like, oh my gosh, we made it, we're here. And of course, like, Nothing to do with them, but it was just sort of a, kind of a huge giant letdown because everything was like, it was so interesting. Like your perceptions and what you, how you build things up in your mind was just really interesting. But anyway, I ended up connecting with Brandon. There was one trip that we went down there where I personally went and stayed with him at his apartment for a few days. And that's when we kind of connected and became friends. And that's actually when he told me about Tooth and Nail. Like we were literally in his hot tub at his apartment building in like 1993. And he's like, what do you think of the name Tooth and Nail? And I was like... <laughs> 
I, I, I was like, what is that? That's so weird. What did he say about Toothy He He said, I think he said it was something that his grandma used to say or something like that. And that he was going to start a label. And I guess I remember kind of being like, whoa, that's crazy. I guess you're just going to start a label. And thinking it was like cool, but probably he wasn't really going to do it. We ain't got no place to go. Let's go to the punk rock show. Darling, take me by the hand. Gonna see a punk rock band. I remember pretty quickly finding out that he already had the ball rolling. He'd already been working with Wish for Eden, I think, and Mike Knott had been helping him out with stuff and all that. And, like, I remember, like, quickly finding out that there was already things happening. And then shortly after, I, th- I think Wish and Starflyer came out first. I think those were the first two, if I'm not mistaken. And then the whole thing with me and MXPX happened that summer. I mean, I feel like. Maybe it wasn't summer, but it was like very shortly after all that happened. That That being you recording their first album. Well, me finding them and offering them a free recording if I could give it to my friend Brandon because I really thought he would get what they were doing and I thought he would like them and they would like him. They just seemed to fit right in with what he was going for. And so I said to Mike, like, if I can record you guys, I'll record you guys. I'll do like three songs at this studio at my church for free. If I can just basically give Brandon first right or refusal, I didn't know what that was at the time, but basically, like, I want to let him hear it first and let you guys talk. Bef- and then if nothing happens, you can have it and do whatever you want with it. Which is funny because that changed the whole trajectory of my life, Brandon's life, MXPX's life. I had no idea. And maybe mine and everybody else's, too. Yeah, very strange, huh? I just thought they were awesome and I was blown away. And I, I really liked Brandon. Brandon and I, like I said, had connected on a personal level. And I felt like we got each other. Like I understood his vision. I understood the passion. I knew why he was doing what he was doing. There was a massive hole. Just huge. Ain't got no money to pay. Doesn't matter, I don't care. We're going to the puck. was living off that $60,000 loan. And then I proceeded to sign three bands and pay for their album budgets. Then I went and got a credit line with my distributor to manufacture all the CDs. So then I was like 150 grand in debt. So it was a huge risk. I mean, it, I, I... But you knew it was a huge risk. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, if you look back and I thought I was going to do it again and I had three kids or something, I don't think I'd ever be able to do it. Like, I mean, it was, you know, and I didn't have wealthy family or anything. So it was a huge risk. It was kind of like all or nothing kind of a vibe, you know? And the music industry is just brutal, so it's, I don't know. So, you, you know, if Frontline blew it, what is it that you can do? What can, What is the talent? Everybody thinks they know how to pick good music. What is, what's different? What else is there? I have no idea. Lo- I'm a little quirky, you know? I'm random Brandon. I remember I went to Vegas with Jason from Starflyer, and we each started with 300 bucks, and I was up like 6G, and he was down like 400 bucks, and he looks over at me, and he goes... There's just two things you need in life, luck and balls. You have both of those, and I don't have either. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I don't know, man. Like, he literally told me that. I don't know. I mean, I just, okay, I've could, always just would, tried. Is, would you think that sums you up well to say that you have luck and balls? Like, I mean, the bottom line is like, you know, part of it's right place, right time. There's this huge need for 
people that were Christian at the time to have options because their parents didn't let them listen to secular music. But you didn't see that fundamentally or primarily. I didn't believe in it. I didn't believe in it. No, I didn't really believe in it, but I wanted to promote it. Tooth & Nail wasn't even supposed to be a Christian label. I just wanted to put out those bands at first because there was this huge scene in Orange County, and I wanted to put those bands out. And because this label wouldn't do it, I was forced to start my own label to do it. But I didn't have this 10-year plan. I mean, I just, I remember I went to every investor and I said, they're like, what kind of return will we get? I'm like, it's going to, you're going to get all your money back. You're going to make money. But they're like, well, how much? I'm like, I don't know. It's never been done. This scene is so ripe (laughs) to be massive. I wasn't really wanting to do it for the money. I just wanted to like get all these bands out and like kind of make a mark, right? Make a difference. And the thing that's literally insane is I think that when he started to the nail, he was like 23 or 24. And like, he just seemed like a grown man to me, but it's like, we were all children. I mean, literally kids, <laughs> but he had such a, such a sense of business and was, um, I don't know. He just seemed like a grown up, even though we were all sort of the same age. Once Brandon was moving to Seattle, I was like, I'll do it. Take me with you. And so I moved with them. I had never been to Seattle. So at that point, did all those guys move up? Here's me and Billy Power again. For just James and Brandon and then who? Yeah, James. Yeah. So Aaron and Matt both decided they didn't want to move. So Blenderhead did our West Coast run. We finished our show in Arizona and then Matt and I drove back to LA in a rent. There was some flood or I don't know what, the earthquake or some shit happened in Southern California around that time. So there were no rental trucks. So we had to rent a truck in Phoenix. And I remember we drove that truck out to LA and then picked up Brandon's stuff from his apartment. And then he drove up and then we drove basically tooth and nail in a truck. <laughs> from California to Washington. And so those guys decided to stay there. And then he hired, I knew this girl, Audra from Calvary. She dated Jeremy Enoch from Sunny Day Real Estate. That was his girlfriend. And uh, so we kind of knew her. She'd come to all those shows and stuff like that. And she knew the poor old Lou guys. And so she got hired basically to be Brandon's assistant. And then um, James um, moved up from California. And then how did you get to work in a tooth and nail? I just basically begged him. Like, I just kind of cornered him. We went out to eat. And I was just like, listen, I know how to do mail order. I can take over your mail order. Like, just let me do it, like, or whatever. And so he let me take over tooth and nail mail order, like, from my studio apartment in Seattle. And this is before he moved or anything, like, and basically just shipped a whole bunch of boxes to me. I got a bunch of those little, like, wire cube things from, like, Kmart or something and put them up in my apartment. And um, I got paid a dollar an item like for, for my pay. I think my first paycheck was like 300 something dollars. And then I got promoted to systems and operations manager. And then he hired my wife at the time to do accounting stuff. And so that was the beginning days there in Seattle where it started to have some early success. Yeah. Yeah. We basically moved into that office down in, um, we were in Pioneer Square across from the sinking ship parking lot by the Smith Tower. And we just had different people coming and doing mail order stuff. And it just started to really take off at that point. I remember we were just initially in a space that was just on the corner of the building. And then every like six months or so, we would just kind of keep expanding down the hall, like in either direction, and then across the hall. And then we eventually opened up a retail store downstairs and then moved mail order downstairs behind the retail store. Yeah, it just kept going crazy. It became like a small family. You know, we had a crew of nine people. I mean, it was awesome. We didn't know what was going to happen when Brandon went up to Seattle. Here's Mark Solomon of Stavesaker and the Crucified. You'll remember him from the last episode, too. As I remember, it was just kind of like another guy who sort of came and gone, you know. I just knew that uh, that by him going up there, it was like they were staking their claim on that town, I, I felt like, you know. 
When I started it, my vision was, hey, I want to create a label with brand loyalty. I don't want to sign only Christian bands, but I want to sign bands with a positive message. I'm a Christian myself, so if I can find an artist that's Christian and has some kind of a Christian backdrop or worldview, that would be cool to support them. And I also just want to have a cool team of people that like, I'm going to work with every day. It's like... And you accomplished that. And I accomplished it. Yeah, yeah. It was just kind of like a movement. I started the label. I had two employees. And then Bill Power, who was in the band Blenderhead, started selling my T-shirts. And then he's one of the main reasons why I moved to Seattle. He convinced me that I should have a label in Seattle because MXPX was blowing up. I hated living in Newport Beach, California, so I was either going to go back to Portland, Oregon, where I grew up and went to Oregon State, or I wanted to go to Seattle because I always had wanted to live in Seattle. Or oddly enough, I was going to move to San Diego. So I literally decided one day, out of nowhere, I'm going to move to one of these three cities. I'm going to move to the nail. (laughs) And, you know, it was just like a a close-knit team. It was a family. It was fun. It was awesome. Like, we were doing something. Like, it was... The staff all felt that way? Absolutely. I think once he had the opportunity to do it, he was willing to do anything. You know, he's extremely hardworking, a workaholic, I I would describe him as. You know, he likes to tell the story of eating the beans, rice, and cheese burritos every day as his only meal and all that kind of stuff during those lean years of whatever. So I think he definitely had a hunger beyond even most people to really want to make something happen. He's like those guys you hear about that are obsessed with the thing that they made, you know? I'll never forget the story. Like I, Dave Bonson, who used to be one of Brandon's partners when they were doing booking agents and stuff, once told us that Brandon fell asleep every night on the floor of his office with a television turned on its side and a videotape playing Dead Poet Society. <laughs> That's what he fell asleep to every night. Carpe diem. Because he was a collector himself and was a huge fan, he was always like willing and ready to listen to to other folks that, that had an opinion about music. And he, I think, he knew how to spot folks or bands that had cred and understood the sensibility of the music, and he knew how to read that well. That's one of Brandon's superpowers. Okay, at this point, we're going to take a slight detour and introduce an important character that'll play a big part in Tooth and Nail history. This is John Dunn. He'll eventually become head of A&R for Tooth and Nail and sign and discover a bunch of your favorite bands. And he'll also eventually join Demon Hunter. But right now, he's just a preteen Christian kid living south of Seattle. He can meet somebody, and within five minutes... He can make a judge whether they have like the star factor, right? Mm-hmm. I am Jonathan Dunn. I'm the bass player in Demon Hunter. I was the director of A&R for Tooth and Nail and Solid State Records for about 10 years. I was there for a lot of fun years. I started hearing about MXPX and started seeing them at house shows. This is kind of before Poconaccia and the uh, Tooth and Nail release and stuff like that. Having older siblings, growing up in Seattle, tied into the Christian scene. So, um, you know, there was like two houses in Seattle. There was the House of Funk was like uh, the guys from Don't Know and mm-hmm. Soul Food 76. And then there was a house of punk um, as like a whatever 12, 13 year old kid. My brother would have to drag me around to these shows. And so I saw MXPX play at those house shows and stuff like that. And so, so that, I mean, that makes you an original, like, you know, the whole thing about punk rock, Christian punk mm-hmm. rock, and that the fans are the kids. Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. in the first generation of oh, yeah. fan yeah. of the, the genre, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Okay, so here we have John Dunn, who by all accounts is a first-generation tooth-and-nail kid. And coming up, we're going to find out what happens when he grows up and manages to land his dream job at Tooth & Nail, the label that he always loved, and then pitches a band to Brandon that he thinks the label's going to love. Sound familiar? All right, we'll be right back. Hey, everyone. This is Melanie Studley. I do sound design and editing for The Labeled Podcast, and Matt and I build these stories together. I wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the Labeled Patreon. If you become a Labeled Patreon supporter and contribute even just a few dollars a month, it helps us out tremendously. All you have to do is head over to patreon.com forward slash labeled. And once you're there, you'll see that there are some pretty cool advantages to being a Labeled member. Advantage number one, we are releasing the raw interviews and conversations that didn't make it into the shows to our Labeled members only. Advantage number two, you can get a special labeled t-shirt and 20% off at the Tooth & Nail online store. So head over to patreon.com forward slash labeled and become a member today. All right, back to the show. So while preteen John Dunn was going to house shows in Seattle with his older brother and seeing the real-time development of the scene, Brandon and Tooth and & Nail were setting up shop in the Pacific Northwest with a team that felt like family who was trying to change the way things worked, and they were doing it. Here's John Dunn again. So Tooth & Nail was doing a grand opening of a Tooth & Nail store in Seattle that was in Pioneer Square. So I don't even know how I heard about the announcement of the store opening. Like, this is kind of pre-internet days. But somehow I knew there was a store and it was opening and it was on a Saturday or whatever. So a handful of friends and I piled into a car. And so we showed up there for the grand opening and we're waiting in line. And there was like five people in line for the grand opening and three of the five rode in the same car. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so uh, that was the first time I met Brandon. I'm, I'm sure I was probably in the room with Brandon as shows were going on and stuff like that, but never met him. So Brandon comes out all excitedly and he's got a video camera and he's like filming the line and interviewing everybody and asking why you're here. What's your favorite band? All that kind of stuff. So store opens, let us go in. So we're digging around and buying CDs and tapes and there's posters and stickers and, you know, just kind of jumping in all this stuff. And uh, I remember Billy Power was at the cash register. So I went up and I was checking out and kind of talking with him or whatever. And I forget how it came up, but, you know, I'm just teenage nerdy kid. So at one point in time in the conversation, I tell Bill, I was like, hey, uh, you know, I'm going to work here one day. Yeah, I'm going to work here one day. And Bill, I mean, I'd probably do the same thing if I was in the spot. Bill looks at me and he's like, yeah, right, kid. <laughs> do you remember the tooth and nail store, that story? Here's me and Billy Power. That John Dunn tells about being the kid at the coming to the tooth and nail store and telling him he was going to work there one day and you, you, you blew him off, he says. <laughs> that sounds right. You know that story? I, 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 I've heard that story. He says at the grand opening of the store. Was he really? The day it opened wow, and he was crazy. waiting in line for it open and Brandon came out with a camera and he said there's footage of him being a kid there and he comes in really? and you're working behind the counter oh, and wow. he goes, I'm going to work at tooth and nail one day and you're like, whatever, kid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a dick. <laughs> <laughs> it just kind of blew me off. And I remember at the time, like I was kind of, uh, kind of offended, like how quickly he blew me off. It wasn't like, yeah, man, like, you know, stay in school and get good grades or, you know, ah. some like pump up. He was just like, whatever kid, like get out of here. <laughs> just blew me off. And I was like, oh, bummer. 
I might have been busy. I was probably stressed out. <laughs> if I think about me during that time period. I remember I remember when he first started, he did intern or something first at Tooth and & Nail. And then I remember him saying something like, I want to do A&R or something. Or, yeah, I remember he, he, like, he was a real like, go-getter. Had bigger aspirations than you know, stuff and things in Jiffy envelopes in the warehouse. You know, the irony is years later, I took his job at Tooth and Nail after he, after he left. So I was right. as that kid. Yeah, was, the store was doing really well. People would come to town and come specifically just to visit the store. We had a lot of kids come from out of town and want to take pictures and, you know, meet people and hang out and stuff like that. The bands started dropping in from the road. They, by then, bands could play, like, at the Paradox Theater in the U District, and Jeff Becker, Suffering, was putting on shows there and that kind of thing. So John Dunn had been blown off by Billy Power, but he was not deterred. And I'll fast forward us a little bit here. Over the next few years, John immersed himself in the local band scene, and that's where I first encountered him and met him in 2001. At the time, he was but a lowly, hustling bass player who seemed to always have the inside scoop and gossip about the drama happening with the bands in Seattle and Tacoma. He was like, seriously, at every show. And he eventually made connections with some Tooth & Nail employees and began helping out with their website, creating flash pages for bands. And eventually he was asked to apply for a position to work at Tooth & Nail as a webmaster. John was ecstatic and really, really nervous for his big interview with Brandon. You know, I'm nervous, like, oh my gosh, this is like my dream. You know, I told Bill Power five years ago that I was going to work here and now I'm coming into the building. And this was like dream status, like dream job for me. I I remember showing up for the interview and I'm like, oh, play it cool, play it cool. Act like you belong here, you know. So I walk into Brandon's office and I'm nervous as I'll get out. And (laughs) the interview was all of five minutes long and he's sitting at his desk and I walk in and he turns around and he's like, hey man, what's up? I'm like, oh, hey. And he's like, uh, so you think you can work here? I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, man. I've been going to school. I'm building these websites. And he's like, oh, okay, yeah. Um, well, yeah, we really need somebody in mail order. So, uh, yeah, if you want to work in mail order, like, I'm cool with it. And just kind of like turns his chair and moves around. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so this isn't about websites. This is about mail order. Like, what? I'm not going to argue, right? Like, I'm just like, okay, yeah, okay, okay. And I leave and I'm like, does that mean I have a job or do I not have to? It was kind of ambiguous. So started working in mail order and doing some website stuff. You know, it took several months before Brandon learned my name. You know, I was just like mail order kid. You just be like, oh, hey, mail order kid, you know, go do this for me and go do that for me. So, yeah, that's kind of how I got my foot in the door at Tooth and Nail. But John wanted more. You know, I wanted to be an A&R guy. I didn't really know what that meant necessarily within like you know, day to day, I just knew like, I want to work with bands. I want to put out music. Like I'm passionate about music and I feel like I have a decent network of musicians that I know and bands that I know and stuff like that. So I definitely wasn't content staying in mail order. Like I wanted to become an A&R guy. I remember the day that John Dunn told us that he got a job in the tooth and nail mail room. Here's me and Brandon again. And when he got the job at Tooth and Nail, we're at Tom Fest 2003, and he's like, guess what? who's going to be working at Tooth and Nail soon? And we're like, whatever, dude. Like, And then he did. It was true, and he did. He started working at Tooth and Nail, and he was, he was the mailroom assistant to Adam McKinnon. And it was like, 
yeah, okay, whatever. You're just the male guy. It's not like you're some important guy. This is that whatever. And then a few months later, we have a demo, and he takes it in. He comes to you with our demo and says, "You got to check this out. This is the lowest guy at your company." So I will never forget the moment. So he came into my office a couple times, and I'm like super hard to talk to because I'm ADD, and like at that time it was crazy. We had like 18 employees and like 30 bands, and you know we're blowing up and doing really good. And you go, "There's this band named Marine. I really think you should check him out." And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, I'll get in. I'm sure." You know, I was trying to be nice to him or whatever. You guys had some demos that you'd done, I think, in your house. You know, I was kind of pitching. And all along that, I'm like, hey, this man Emery, they're going to do it. And they're going to Ed Rose and self-funding it. And again, mail order kid, it was like, whatever, dude, just stuff the packages. I don't I don't care. I remember the exact moment it's burned in my mind because we had this loading dock where the trucks would come in because like we did all of our mail order and T-shirts, everything. We had a warehouse below the offices. And I came in early that day, like 7 a.m., 6.45 to 7 in the morning. And I walk in and John's there earlier than I was, right? He's working. And I was like, cool. So I used to show up super early in the morning. Like I would be there at six and just grind it away before people got there at 9.30, 10. I think I had a mix of walls. So I had that one song that I burned on a CD to play on the giant uh, stereo that I had in the mailroom. It was on repeat and just max volume, stuffing envelopes. And I remember Brandon walked in and I go, hey man, good morning. I'm drinking my coffee, trying to wake up. And he was like, hey, what's up, man? You know that band Emery always tell you about? <laughs> Victory's going to sign him. <laughs> and I was like, you know, totally in my mind, like, oh, okay. He goes, you have to hear this. He just recorded with Ed Rose and got the song back. Like, pretty amazing, right? And he played me Walls. So I listened to about like a minute of it. I could see the wheels turning in his mind. He's like, dang, that is good. That is a hit. That is a good song, right? So I was like kind of dumbfounded how good it was. You've been talking about his band for a while. Yeah, for a couple weeks or and a you've month. you've been nice to him. And then yeah, he, kind of humoring him more like, good job, John. He's going for He's it. He's like, yeah, that's pretty cool. And then he starts walking. So it was about halfway through the song and I turn around and I go, I got to get going. So I start walking out that we had this kind of like weird walkway that was in between the warehouse and the, the other warehouse. So I start walking through there and I knew he thought I was kind of blowing him off. And then he stops at like the threshold to leave the mail order office space and he kind of stops there and he turns around and he goes, you should probably try to sign him up. <laughs> and then I walk out the door. Just walks out of the room, right? <laughs> Just leaves and I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm signing my first band. I don't know what that means, but I've done it. Like, yeah, I'm going to sign a band. And I remember after he said that, just staring in the parking lot, waiting for Chad Johnson, who was running A&R at the time. I'm like, just waiting for Chad. I'm like, I, I got to ask Chad what this means. I'm supposed to sign him. Like, I got to ask Chad, what does it mean now that I need to sign him? And so eventually Chad rolls up and I just mob Chad as soon as he shows up. And I'm like, that band, Emery, the one I've been pitching to you. I got a song. Brandon says I, I should sign him. What, what do I do? And Chad's like, oh, yeah, cool. Okay, yeah, man. Yeah, man, we'll, we'll sign it. We'll figure it out. So then about two hours later, he comes back and he goes, so when you say try to sign him up, what do you mean? I'm like, well, why don't we uh, get him in here and have him play a show somewhere? I don't know, like set up a showcase somewhere. And then, uh, I mean, if I could see how they are live, let's, you know, offer him a deal. But I want to see him live. And then you guys ended up playing in the basement. Yeah, I did want to highlight that parallel when I saw it there. You immediately got the front line. You did this. You did that. Shut down. Later, foreshadow, you got this youngest guy in your company. He comes to you with our demo and says, you got to check this out. This is the lowest guy at your company. You're open to it. You sign it. This guy becomes like your head of A&R and has a great career. Yeah. Right.
So you see, we come full circle here. Brandon was shut down at Frontline, but then he forged his own path with Tooth and Nail, where he then sees the opportunity to change the lives of people like John Dunn by giving them the chance that he didn't get. And yeah, I am sorry that my band Emery is going to come up from time to time here. It happens to be the lens that I know most of these people and stories through. But more importantly, and in this case, Brandon's decision-making has changed my life, and it's a good story. So being able to spot and harness and highlight the talents of other people, bands and staff, is Brandon's magic. And if you're listening to this podcast, Brandon Ebel's actions have probably altered your life in some way as well. So now back in time, back to the mid-90s, we have his label up and running and primed to explode with the upcoming and breakout success of bands like MXPX and other ones. But this music and art-focused movement was not without its own identity crisis. And on the next episode, we'll explore the complicated tightrope walk that Christian artists have to walk. Too Christian for the secular world, too worldly for the Christian industry, maintaining your personal and artistic integrity, and managing fans' expectations. Oh yeah, I almost forgot. Surprisingly, money becomes a factor too. And I'm sure these degenerate punk musician kids in their early 20s in an uncharted industry will handle that with no problem at all. My name is Andy from Charleston, South Carolina. I'm a labeled member, and my favorite tooth and nail band of all time is Under Oath. Matt Carter is our host. Editing, sound design, and musical supervision by Melanie Studley. Mixing and additional musical supervision by Chris King. Story by Matt Carter. Production assistants Reva Hansen and Frank Santana. Our executive producer is Brandon Ebel. Special thanks to Adam Scatula, Tyson Paletti, and Marshall Fremont at Tooth and Nail Records. If you find this show meaningful, please support it at patreon.com slash label. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.